morning, um, we will continue our sermon series through the book of um, Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 18, and as I told you several weeks ago, Jesus is coming from up north. He is heading slowly downward to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be put in the grave. I don't know how much further down you can get than that. And Jesus is heading in that trajectory in that direction he is going from speaking to the masses this the the mega church has left him and it is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller until really there's only one member left and it's him and he's upon a cross by himself okay but Jesus is spending the last several months possibly even the last year of his life pouring mostly in private moments with those 12 disciples and we're going to see that again in all of chapter 18 that Jesus is going to use this illustration of children for an entire chapter in the development of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus but also what is that interaction he's looked at a lot of what does discipleship look like in the world but what does discipleship look like between you and I, and he's going to use this idea of us being children to kind of paint that picture. So Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. He will eventually be portrayed. He will be beaten. He will be hung on a cross. He will die, and he will be resurrected. Jesus has shared with them this truth at least two times, possibly three times, maybe even more than that, that this is coming, that he is going to die, but that he is going to be resurrected. Um, they head toward Capernaum, uh, where they have been on multiple occasions to the house, and it is possible that this is actually the dwelling place of Peter and his wife, and if Peter has a wife, he probably also may have Children. We don't know exactly for sure that's speculation, but it's speculation based on scholarship. Um, so we see that as Jesus is heading to Capernaum, um, where he is, he's just told them that he is going to die. Um, inside of Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, um, this story that we're just read happens pretty quickly once they get it to Capernaum. Um, as you heard from Pastor Justin last week, we did have in the Gospel of Matthew the little story about taxes, which I'll hint to that in just a moment. But once they get to the house, Jesus asks them a question. And inside of your listening guide, your weekly this morning, I also put the parallel passage to Mark because I'm going to use that um, kind of coincidingly throughout the whole time. And I don't, for time of sake, or, or sake of time, that's funny. Uh, for sake of time, um, I've put it inside of your listening guide there this morning. But we see once they get to the house that, that Jesus asked the disciples, hey, while you were walking here with me, what were you guys discussing? Like Jesus didn't know. Luke's gospel even tells us that Jesus knows their thoughts inside of this section. It's kind of like when God shows up um, to Adam and Eve and asks them in the garden after they've sinned, where are you? He knows exactly where they are. And God knows exactly where you and I are as well. But he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And it tells us in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, a little bit more into the story, or excuse me, in Mark and Luke, tells us a little bit more of the story. And it tells us that the disciples on their way to Capernaum have gotten into an argument about who was the greatest. And so after Jesus asked them this question, the Bible tells us that they keep silent that they don't want to answer. Do you ever walk into your kids doing something that they're not supposed to be doing? Hey, what are you doing? Nothing. Right? Nothing. What are you guys talking about? Nothing. Right? This is the picture that we get of Jesus with these 12 disciples. And so my, my hope this morning is to paint a wide stroke picture of who God is, but also of you and 
who you and I are and what that means for us through this passage. And so we see, or we have learned throughout the scripture, that the disciples uh, were probably much younger than you and I ever thought that they were. I grew up going to church. I've been many occasions uh, wearing a fake beard as I acted like a disciple at the Last Supper. Anybody else grow up in that church where they slapped a towel on your head that was baby blue and gave you a fake beard and you were supposed to act like a 30, 40, 50, 60 year old? That was my upbringing, okay? Not the picture of probably what we see inside of Scripture. Many of these men who were following Jesus were probably what we would consider to be teenagers. Jesus was in his early 30s. Typical rabbi could not um, have followers or disciples till after the age of 30. So this makes sense according to his age. Jesus is 30. He's the old guy. He's probably 32 by now, 30, working toward 33. Um, then you have Peter. He's the loud one, the boisterous one. We even learned last week that it is Peter and Jesus who have to pay the temple tax. We don't get an appearance that the rest of the men had to. And typically that was around, I think, the age of 20 to 21 when one started to have to pay that tax. Jesus provides the tax, right? Go fishing. There's money in the fish. That's the kind of fishing I want to do too. All right? Jesus and Peter's temple tax has been paid. They're now at the house, and they're having this sort of conversation. But when we start thinking about these teenagers um, who are following like Jesus, please, I do want to clarify something. I'm not talking about teenagers in the same way that our teenagers are teenagers, okay? Um, adolescence is an invented thing, all right? Read the Bible. There is no such thing as adolescence. There's no such thing as from the age of 13 to 21, you can act a fool and there be no ramifications for that. You went from being a child one day to being a man, to being a woman, okay? Adolescence has been invented by modern humanity, not by God. I think that's why we have a lot of problems with 34-year-olds being the leading video game buyers and purchasers in the world are 34-year-old men. I have men that have graduated from college who are still sitting up all night long with headsets, cussing each other out, playing Call of Duty at night at their mama's house. This is a problem because we have prolonged and created this idea called adolescence. So I'm not talking about teenagers in the sense of like, you know, the, the guy who's, who's, you know, just really messed up teenager, all right? Typical for modern American teenager. So there's more responsibility in these guys. However, we can see, though, that though these men were young, they were considered to be men. But, but like typical fallen man, we often struggle with comparing ourselves, this is nothing new. A man walks into a new place to meet other men or sees other men, and immediately, internally, he is sizing everyone up in the room. I can take him. I can take him. I need to run from him. This is every man, just to let you guys know. You just got to whip the smallest dude there and know the run from the biggest dude. This is the problem with every dude who ever goes to the gym, all right? Uh, this is a, a major thing. You will not go to a middle school locker room and not find a young man who is claiming to be the best. I am the best. I am the greatest. Not only do middle school boys do this, but grown men often do it as well, just internally. We're constantly comparing, constantly sizing up. And we see here in this passage that they are asking the question and jockeying back and forth on who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has been doing ministry, has been talking about the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. These can be used interchangeably. When we look at the definition of greatest, in the original language means like very, very great. They are not asking the question, will we be great? Notice, 
They're asking the question, who will be greatest? I don't know much about the English language, but I believe in its tenses it goes great, which is great, greater, which is greater than great, and lastly, greatest, right? And that is what is the tense that is being used here. Who is the great S? The assumption is we will be great. But out of these 12, who, are, who is the great S? And they realize in this moment, as they will, we're going to see this same thing happen over and over and over again through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Them wrestling with who is going to be the greatest in heaven out of the 12. We see here immediately there is shame. How do we know that? They are silent, but there is something inside of their very nature, and they cannot help themselves. Still, after all of these years of following Jesus, seeing the miracles, hearing the teaching, they still did not understand his mission, his kingdom, his character, and his nature. They, they feel trapped, as we often do, in trying to put characteristics of humanity and what we see in our environment on him and on his kingdom. And yet God's word tells us that he is not like us. And to put characteristics of us as humans and this world onto God is ill-suffice. It, it does not paint the picture, and yet that is what these men are doing. They are hearing about this kingdom. They are hearing about him being king and immediately are equating those things to an earthly king, kings from their history, an earthly kingdom. They, therefore, create hierarchy who is the greatest? We know we're not Jesus. We know we're not God. But as far as in complete human form, which one of us bad boys are the greatest? Which one of us are the best? Who is the VP in the kingdom? Remember, Jesus has just told them that he is going to die. It's like a family member coming to you and saying, I'm going to die. And immediately, immediately your family having discussion on who's going to get your stuff. Jesus is telling them he is going to die, and immediately all they can think about is which one of them is the greatest. Which one of them is the best. We have to wonder, as they're jockeying for position, that if it's not Peter leading the charge in this, right? Peter is the speech giver. I mean, think about it. Peter's the one that got to walk on the water with Jesus. I mean, he can look at these other young ragamuffin group of young men and say, hey, you know, I got to walk on water with Jesus. Hey, did you guys know that Jesus gave me a nickname? He calls me Rocky. Did, did you guys know that, you know, hey guys, Peter, James, John, guess what we got to see Jesus do? Jesus took us upon the mountain and then, and then they remember that Jesus tells them they can't tell anybody. Doesn't that sound like a group of young people? Hey man, did you hear about, oh I can't tell you. I can't tell you. You can't do that to people. Don't you hate it when people do that to you? They set you up to learn some sort of information or to tell you something, and then they realize they can't tell you, right? And, and so we have to wonder if it's not Peter or James or John that are kind of leading this discussion. I mean, can you believe what we saw? We can't tell you, but, you know, I'm, I'm Peter. I've got to do a lot more than all of you. Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing their thoughts, knowing that this debate has been taking place, notice what Jesus does, verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, 
unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is a very different context than you and I. Man, we love each other's kids, right? You'll see a lot of time when somebody has a newborn baby and they, you get to meet them for the first time, a person will run up to you and say, man, can I hold your baby? Right? We wrestle with each other's kids. I mean, I love Colton and Rylan Lewis. I love those boys. They are all boys. But one of the reasons why I love them is because I can treat them rotten and they're not mine. Like they keep going home to Brian and to Bethany, right? But man, I love those two boys. I just, just want to wrestle with them and, and hug them and throw them around and then send them home to them full of candy, all right? I mean, that's, we, we love kids inside of our culture. Inside of an early Jewish culture, this was unfathomable. Kids were great to be born. Culturally, you needed to have a kid. We see this over and over in Scripture, right? It's a recurring theme. If you can't have a child, that's a bad deal inside of Scripture for these people. And what do we see God do over and over and over? Take barren women and give them children. All right? But once they're born, there ain't much to it. Okay? We don't even see much of Jesus's childhood at all within an early jewish culture the idea of loving on kids and your world revolving around your kids was simply not the case you did what god wanted you did what your job wanted you to do and your kids came alongside of you they weren't little gods running around these houses jesus does something that is unfathomable to these men they're the men, right? And, and Jesus, all of a sudden, he calls this child, and it's believed by some that maybe even this was Peter's son or kid or child. And Jesus calls a kid to himself, and, and, and these children are insignificant. They were not culturally important. They could not contribute to your household. What does an infant do? What does a baby do but want? In a Jewish culture, in this culture, in a historical ancient culture, I mean, think about it. There's, you're scavenging for food constantly. You're trying to provide for your family. And a child, an infant, cannot help with that. All they can do is take Jesus is in this home. He's teaching his disciples, and he summons a child to himself. And what does the child do? Comes to Jesus. We, we don't know if there's former relationship in this. In Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus sits down, which is the common posture for the teaching of God's word. I had a lady tell me one time, she was like, I would never go to a church where the preacher sat down while he preached. She wouldn't go to Jesus' church. Because typically, historically, when you would, we would preach the word, I should be sitting. If there's anybody that's standing, it would be you. All right? It was the common practice. And so Jesus takes the posture of teacher. The Bible tells us that he sits down and he takes the child into his arm. In your listening God, Mark guide, Mark chapter 9, verse 35 through 37. If anyone would be first... Jesus says, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. So he kind of sets them. And then he, taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells these grown men who have been following them for years, who have seen all of these miraculous things that Jesus has done, and he, he says to them, you must become a servant and a child. This illustration would have rocked the disciples. Weren't they already in slavery? Yes, 
Yet Jesus is saying to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must be a servant. They must be a child. A servant, something you would never want to be. A slave, something you would never want to be. And a child, in their culture, insignificant, cannot contribute. Of low status. And Jesus tells these 12 men they've gotten it all wrong. believe that Jesus unveils what these examples are illustrating in verse 4. Whoever what? Say it. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is combating the very root of their debate. They are thinking that they are great they are thinking arrogantly. They are thinking with, you know, just being filled with, with pride. And the enemy of pride is this word called humility. And Jesus is using the example of a child and showing the need of great humility. Brothers and sisters, humility is not self-pity, though, this morning. Humility is not low self-esteem. Did you know that arrogance has kind of two masks that it can wear? It can wear this mask that I am the greatest, but also pride can be painted as I am the worst. Both of those are arrogant. Jesus does not call us to pride. The enemy does. It is a seed that is probably hidden and behind every one of our sins is the sin of pride and of arrogance that is driving us, our desires, our wants, our needs, all of those things in many ways, even Satan himself as it entered through him is, is prideful and arrogant in what? That he wants to be God. And in the book of Genesis, what is the first thing that is happening inside of Adam and Eve? is their desire to be God. And the root of that is pride and arrogance, thinking that godliness is something that you and I can achieve upon ourselves. God, Jesus, is ruining their debate. He tells them that they must be humble. Humility is a, a low view of one's own self-importance. In a culture like ours where... To succeed, you must assert yourself above everyone else. How many of you guys have ever had an interview? What does everybody ask you? Why are you the best for this position? It's ingrained to us as we are being small kids. How many of you guys have ever been told, you can do whatever you want to do. All you have to do is set your mind to it and you can do it. You can be anything you want to be. Man, what a lie. What a lie that we have grabbed a hold on in our pride, in our arrogance, that we are being told by everything from Axe body spray to, to the food that you eat that we can be the very best. It is ingrained in our American culture. We believe that we are number one and that we are the saviors of the world. All the world needs to do is become more like America the Great. And yet this is not the scripture. We must, brothers and sisters, have a proper view of ourselves. Jesus turns their debate of who's the greatest upside down. Listen to what he says here. The question is not as what is your rank. But Jesus says, are you even in the kingdom to begin with? Notice what he says, unless you turn and become like children. So Jesus does, he skips past their immaturity. The child is being more mature than the adult. 
adults inside of the room. He doesn't even address that immaturity. No, Jesus gets at the real root of the matter. He gets to the very heart, the very marrow of the, the idea of what is happening here and asks the question and poses the, the question for them to ask in very strong language as he sits there with a the child in his arms. Are you even in? You must be like this child to even get in the kingdom. We're not going to talk about the rank once you're in. The question that Jesus poses to them, are you in the kingdom to begin with? While the disciples are jealous, competing against each other through self-promotion and wanting status, Jesus wants them to elevate if, if they are even citizens in the kingdom at all. And does this sound familiar to anybody but me? Is this not our struggle? Whether it's in your neighborhood, your job, your family, or your church. And our sinful nature is bent toward a desperate need to feel significant, to be approved by others. There are many people who are enslaved to the approval of other people in their lives. They are completely controlled by it, and maybe that is you. As a child or as a teenager, we call, talk about this being the idea of who is popular. We all want to be popular. You know, for me and Hannah and my sister, we grew up in Franklin, which was much more like 90210 than it was South Central Kentucky. And I'm not talking about the remake 90210. I'm talking about the real one. All right? That is how we grew up, man. It was being driven by popularity and what your parents did and what car did you drive and what neighborhood did you live in. Our culture, I mean, people, you just went to school paranoid because you were wearing L.A. gears. Am I lying? I know a guy who, this is when polo was cool and old men just didn't wear it. I knew a dude, he, he swore by wearing polo every day. And one day, my sister, I think, told me this story, is that he showed up to school one day and, and he didn't have on a polo shirt and took a Sharpie and drew the little horse on his chest. And don't be bringing out that Knights of the Round Table. We see that little extra flag on his staff. That cheap stuff you get from the flea market. We know the difference between real Tommy Hilfiger. The heirs are like, we don't even know any of these people. We're too young. All right? I mean, these were real. Kanatica. I mean, this guy I used to work with, that's what he called it. Kanatica. Got to wear that Kanatica. Got a boat on it. I'm talking about this, was, this wasn't something that just happened later. Our entire lives were centered around these mentalities. Status, popularity. Am I going to get a superlative at the end of the year? Am I going to be in the, in the yearbook as one of the, the 20 most liked? I remember missing homecoming, uh, like, um, you know, your, you could choose a class favorite, and I missed it by one vote my freshman year of high school for being the most popular guy in my class. And I cried, not at school, because that's uncool, and that would mess with my status. I went home and I cried, because I missed it by one vote. Status, popularity, and let us not be fooled this morning. Adults do the same thing. Even within the church, we are consumed with arrogance. We are, are consumed with pride and self-promotion. All of us hate it when someone receives the credit for our idea. It is hard for us to celebrate when those who are less deserving are promoted around us. Now, if you have any children, you're probably saying right now, well, Jesus does not know my child if he is telling me to be like a child. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not talking about immaturity here. 
He's talking about a specific aspect of a child. Jesus is not calling us to be immature. There's enough of that going on inside of the church. Jesus is calling us to maturity, but true maturity looks like humility. And so why does Jesus equate humility to a child? It is a specific trait found inside of most or inside of children. Parents, have, has, has, have you ever had an experience with your kid where they are completely desperate for your help? Maybe when they're sick or when they're hurt. Or think back when your child was a baby, when they were completely unable to take care of themselves. Total inability to provide food, clothing, shelter, protection. It can do nothing. That baby can do nothing apart from you inside of their life. They're, they're humble. They're of low status. They are completely dependent on someone else taking care of that child. In this Jewish culture, they are insignificant because they cannot contribute. They are humble in their status. They're a, a, a hand out needing help and care and someone to take care of them or they will die. This is what Jesus is getting at. The heirs, they're about to have a small little Eric Jr. here next few months. And one of the things they're going to quickly realize is that a baby offers nothing to your relationship. Nothing. What does it give you? Vomit. And it uses the bathroom on itself. And as soon as you change it, it does it again. I mean, think about new parents. A baby will use the bathroom on itself, and you're just like, that, that poo-poo is so cute. No. All right? It is not cute. But that baby is completely dependent. All of us have heard horrific stories of abandonment of children, right? We're not talking about a feral child here who eventually learns how to, you know, run with the wolves and take care of itself. No, we're talking about a, a child who is completely dependent on someone else to take care of it. And that's how we are all of our lives. But we serve a God that even in your mess as an adult loves you like the parent of a newborn baby. that cares for you, that loves you, that nurses you. It is, it is like a child who is lost in a large group of people. If they are lost and you are there, notice they are not crawling out for their friend. They're not calling out for their school teacher. No, this child that is lost in a group of people, who are they saying, Mommy, Daddy, they're calling out for their provider. They're calling out for their protector. Jesus is saying, you must be humble. You must have a correct view of yourself. You must be humble at the realization of, of how sin has completely, totally in, uh, you know, depraved you, has kept you. You are completely unable to take care of yourself because of sin. It has not merely given you a cold. No, sin has left you dead in it. And you need someone to take care of you. How can there be any arrogance in that? We are the child who is naked. Covered in, a, in our own mess. We are a starving child. Brittle bone. Bloated belly. In need of a Savior. Jesus says we are that child. Have you ever noticed how really small kids never complain about the brand of clothes that you have put on them? 
How a really small child never, compared, uh, never complains about the car that you are driving. They, they never complain about the size of house that you live in. My dad used to have a 68 GMC. Column stick shift. If you know what that is, you're old. Stick shift's in the floor. Stick shift was on the side. It was a rusty orange bucket. It was his dad's, and I believe that he had bought it from my other grandfather a long time ago. 68 GMC rust bucket. And before my sister and I had license, sometimes he would have to take us to school after working all night long to provide for his family. And we would ask my dad to drop us off where no one could see us. So instead of taking us up to the door, dad would go way back behind the school, close to the ag building, and we would be like, oh, okay, dad, that's good. <laughs> like, let us out right here. And me and my sister would get out there, and it's boom, door. And we'd be like, you know, trying to get as cool as with our Jan Sport backpack on to get in, and our trapper keeper to get into school, right? Hoping no one would see us. You know, a small child doesn't know that it's a hoopty or a hummer. They don't complain about those things. Anybody see this week the little boys in Kentucky, their best friends in like preschool, and one of them's African-American and one of them's white and they're best friends? And so the little boy came home one day. He said, man, I, I don't remember their names. I'm sorry. He says, you know, I want to look like my best friend, Johnny. And the little African-American has like a little bald haircut. And so his mama takes him to master cuts or something like that. And he goes, man, I want to look like Johnny. And the parents got together and, and he goes and he gets all of his hair buzzed off. And he's standing there and they're taking pictures. And he's like, you can't tell the difference, can you? We look exactly the same. He wanted to be twins with his African-American friend. See, he, he didn't notice the things that we notice. He celebrated the diversity, thinking we can be that way. This is the picture that Jesus is saying. Jesus, get this this morning, I am talking about you. I am talking about me. Stop worrying about how much lumber that you are sending to heaven and start thinking about it and working out your salvation with fear and trimming on whether or not you really know this Jesus. Jesus says, the greatest don't make it. The greatest don't make it. But those who are like these children, and this is not some theology about kids, there's a deeper meaning here of how we are to be like humble, like these children, insignificant by all the world's account, yet very significant to God because they realize they are completely dependent on Him to be great on this earth and to be great in hell is no accomplishment. Jesus is saying, no, it is the children who make it. It is the humble. It is the servant who makes it. We come to Jesus often demanding and misunderstanding what Jesus is trying to do in our lives, don't we? As long as Jesus works according to my plan and purposes, all things are good and possible. But when Jesus twists that and uses suffering and difficulty in our lives to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, then we often are waving our fist and flipping him the bird. A few weeks ago, I went to Beta, which I encourage none of you to ever do, convention with my daughter. It was like going to hell for a few days. Surrounded by children. It is time I will never get back. Okay? Being with my daughter was cool. The rest of it was terrible. Okay? Bunch of smart kids who can't put on a convention. That's what that was. All right? I'm glad the world is ruled by C average. That's hope for me. All right? I am beat. All right? I've been up with four sixth graders for 48 hours. I am beat. 
as soon as that thing was over, even before it was over, I looked at the sponsors and I said, Baker's out. Dropped that mic and I got my truck and I went home. All right? I was like, I'm not standing this anymore. All right? We get home. We've been home five minutes. Ava takes out our dog, if you want to call it that, is an animal that dwells in our place. She takes the animal outside. Five minutes, I hear her come running into the house, and I'm thinking, she has just witnessed Gizmo getting squatted by a car. Ava comes running into the house, and she's holding her eye like this right here, and she's like, ah! She goes like this, and it looks like she has been in a UFC fight. She has blood that is gushing from her forehead. And I look at her face, and she has this huge gash underneath her eye. And she is losing her mind. This is a girl who will cry over cough medicine. And I'm about to have to take her to the hospital. We get let out the secret door at the doctor's office over shots. <laughs> because she is unconsolable to walk her through everybody else. That's my daughter. And I'm having to take her to the emergency room. I look at this girl, I take her, and I'm, I'm calm. I'm like super dad. If you don't know me, you can just call me that from now on, because I am. And I calmly take my daughter, and I get, I mean, she's just, ah! I mean, she looks like, if you've ever seen, you know, the, the real gremlins, when you pour water on them, they turn into those green gremlin things. This is my daughter, blood gushing I get her some, some cloth, I put on her forehead, and I'm like, I go through the, pro I do the right thing, I get their level, right? You need to learn that as a parent. You get on their level, don't stand up here, you gotta get down here. Ava, I'm about to take you to the ER. When we get to the ER, they're probably gonna give you a shot in that eye. <laughs> then, they're going to give you stitches. This is what is about to happen. I want to communicate to you clearly so that you know. <sighs> I put Ava into the back of the Jeep, and as we're leaving my house to drive to the emergency room, this is, the on this is not a sermon illustration. This is actually true. This is what my daughter is saying. I can't believe you're taking me to the ER. People go to the ER to die. You don't love me. If you love me, you would let me stay home. I'm never going outside again. You hate me. Ah, I would rather have a scar on my face than go to the ER. Do you think people are going to think I'm dumb because when they find out the way I got this cut was I walked into my own mailbox? That's my girl. Isn't that what you and I do toward God? When it doesn't go our way, and suffering will often come by our own demise, and yet, we're saying to God, like Ava in the back of my Jeep, you don't love me. I hate you. I'm never being obedient again. This is what obedience gets me. You wouldn't be letting me have, to, have this if, if you were good. This would not be happening in my life. Yet two weeks later, we're sitting at the house and Ava humbly looks at her daddy and says, Daddy, thank you for taking me to the ER. Thank you. Guess what? Ava's been outside again. She's not very clear where our mailbox has always been located. I left the house this morning. Guess what she said? I had a tough morning this morning, just be very confessionally. As I'm going to leave the house, Ava goes, I hear this little voice. Daddy, I love you. We come not 
to God demanding that we often do. But God is calling us to be dependent. Not demanding. A humble child, a humble servant is not demanding, but is dependent. Notice a child is quick to love, aren't they? Have you ever done something wrong to your kids? You will. And one of the ways that you need to teach them is by being able to go to them and saying, Daddy messed up. Mommy messed up. you got to teach your kids that as well. But notice how quickly, immediately though, that kids are quick to love you back. They're quick to forgive you. As soon as you say, Daddy messed up, okay, Daddy, I love you. Let's go play. Isn't it crazy? That is not how adults act. I hate you. Get out of the house. Right? You're terrible. We write people off. We have a small list. We keep it to ourselves of people we want to kill before we die or hope God kills. You are dead to me. Isn't that? It's funny. You're laughing because it's a nervous giggle. You know it's true. Or Jesus. Children are quick to befriend, quick to trust, to forgive. But as we grow older, we have a tendency to lose this. Jesus, notice what he says them to them, unless you turn. This is the same language that Jesus is calling. It's called repentance, right? You are heading in this direction. Turn and put your faith in Jesus. And, and Jesus looks at these disciples. They've been following him, and he says, you've got to turn. You must be converted. There must be a transformation. There must be something that reverses the way in which you're heading. Now head this way. Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children. Turn from personal greatness. In a culture that is all about making America great again, the gospel is about making others great. We live not to make a name for ourselves. We live not to become the famous one. No, we live for the greatness of one name, and his name is Jesus. It is Jesus that is who we want to be great. Being a believer, being a child, being a servant is putting the needs of others above our very own. This is the mark of authentic Christianity that Jesus is trying to get to. Not jockeying for who's the best preacher, the best teacher, who can do this Christian thing, who can be the celebrity, who's got it all together. No, Mission Church, we are way more screwed up than we ever let on here on a Sunday morning or at a missional community. And the quicker that we will all confess that and live that, the healthier that we will be. And the more gospel-centered we will be. First Peter tells us in chapter 5, verse 4 through 6, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he will exalt you goes on Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 so if there's any encouragement in Christ and again this is about us as believers how do we interact as a group of children in Christ so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affliction and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being full accord and of mind do nothing Greek word for nothing means nothing do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Brothers and sisters, if I, as one of your elders, find my significance and, and, and my worth in being a pastor, I want you to know that I have missed 
read the text. I do not understand the gospel, but you and I, our greatest identity is not found in what we do or even do for God, but our greatest identity is found in the person and work of Jesus who declares that you are son, that you are daughter. And if we are sons and daughter, then the Bible over and over and over again tells about the importance of being immersed in the local church so that you and I can do the one another's. Love one another. Seek the benefit of one another. Serve one another. You cannot do that outside of the church for the sake of the glory of God. And Jesus is telling these young men, man, you must serve. You must, must give. You must be humble. Count others more significant than yourself as there's anything more countercultural than that. Husbands, your wife are more significant than you. Your, your children are more significant than you. And so there should be this loving tension in our marriage if both of you are Christians, because guess what, wife? Your husband is more significant than you. And so we are competing to outdo each other in the glory of God. Isn't that the kind of marriage you want? And the kind of friendships that you want? Man, isn't that the kind of church that you want to be a part of? Not so that we can get buttons and pins that declare how awesome we are. No, that is missing the point. But in the words of Martin Luther, the great reformer, and the reason why many of us are a part of what's called a Protestant church, once said this, you need to get this, God does not need your good works. You, get, you give no benefit to God. You're a baby. An infant. God did not need to create humanity. He was in perfect relationship before the foundations of the earth and what is called the Trinity. It was a perfect relationship. He receives nothing more than what is already inside of him from you and I. God does not need our good works, but your neighbor does. And brothers and sisters, your neighborhood starts with the people in this room. It does. How do we outlove each other? How do we outserve each other? Sometimes, man, I am so consumed with wanting you to like me that I will not put your needs above my own. In this way, I don't say the things that need to be said. Because I want you to like me. And yet... Sometimes I'm putting someone else's needs and, and, and as, as more significant than my own means sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you, you hopefully get to say yes a lot. My yes always wants to be on the table toward my wife. My wife, I always want to be in the yes. My table, my, I want my yes to be on the table toward my kids. Man, as a church, man, I, I want my yes to be on the table as one of your elders. But sometimes to take care of you, to help protect you, to shepherd you under the shepherding of Jesus, we must say no. We must say warning, warning, warning. God does not need our good works. He is good. And the good works that we have done, the Bible tells us in Ephesians that he has destined them to happen. Ephesians chapter 2. We must fight the drift of self-promotion. We must fight the drift of comparison even within the church. Tell me, what rises to power in our world? Money and might. If you've got money and you got might, you're powerful in this world, but not in the kingdom of heaven. Many times within the church, what does the enemy do with this? Man, I am doing all of this for the church, and look what they're not doing. In your marriage, I am doing all of this for him. And he's doing nothing for me. Brothers and sisters, what God calls us to is not based on serving in humility, based on a reaction to others being serving and humble. In your marriage or in the church. No, we serve unto God.
we give unto God. Despite what others may be or may not be doing. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to be shame, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The kingdom of God, the church, is not centered on what we get. If you came here expecting to get something this morning, I want you to know that is a secondary leveled thing. You should get up this morning saying, we get to gather as the saints of God. What can I give? We serve for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. What if, whether it be a neighbor, a non-believer, a person here at church, whatever it is, the first time that you met someone, the person who serves you your food, if immediately the first thing that would come to your mind is not what can I get from this person, but how can I serve them? We must be of this understanding that God is first. And though I love these testimonies called I Am Second, if you've not seen those, I encourage you to look them up. The only problem I have with them is the title. We are not second. It is that God is first. Others are second. And we are third. This is the mindset of Christ. What does this passage reveal about that in Christ? When Jesus was on the cross, you were not the primary focus on his mind. Obedience to God was. God is first. Who is second? Others are second. We are the benefactors of Jesus' obedience. He laid himself down. This is why the, the, the body, if, if, if anyone is great in the room right now at this house, it is not these men, it is Jesus. And yet God, what God required of, of man to give in service and humility, Jesus fulfills. Do you get that? Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What a terrible thing to do to God. To put him into this. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So we see it here. Jesus' servant. Jesus is humbled. He is made low. He understands his status. He can be king. He is king, yet he comes as child laid in a manger, a peasant man walking around, no room for him to be born in, no pillow for him to lay his head on. He is prounced through town naked, placed upon a cross. He is servant, yet he has humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him, look, lowliness exaltation the way up for the believer is down do you get that the way up is down the way to be exalted is to live faithfully to be forgotten it's to see ourselves as God sees ourselves but ultimately is to see Jesus. God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name. What does greatness do? What does the greatest do? He disrobes. He grabs a basin. He grabs a towel. And he washes Feet. What, is the, what does the most powerful man do in the room? He, he washes feet. The Bible tells us that we will one day cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Why, though, in closing? As we're going to see probably in this entire chapter, 
What is in his arms? A child. As Jesus is saying all of this, he's holding a child. Brothers and sisters, there's three people in the room. There's Jesus, there's the baby, the kid, the infant, and there are disciples. You are not Jesus. But do you look more like a disciple in this case? I'm not saying that they were unsaved, okay, but there's some major issues taking place inside of this story. Do you look more like the disciple who thinks they are the best? Or do you look like the child that is in the arms of Christ? There is good news here today. And it's that Jesus takes the children. And I want and desire to be counted among them. And how can we know that? By the fruit of faithful service. Not serving to be promoted and popular. Faithful service and humility. May it be said of me. May it be said of you. May it be said of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.